to C3 Church Hepburn Heights. We believe Jesus Christ gives life to the full and we are called to live it and share it. We pray you enjoy this message today. We're in our third and final week of three weeks to slightly better relationships. And if you have missed either of first or second, encourage you to jump on all our platforms, be it podcast or YouTube, and check out the great content. And our hope and prayer, certainly my hope and prayer in this series is that you have grabbed a hold of these bite-sized messages with two hands and that you have then chewed on that content and that you have digested that content and that you have been able to apply some of that content graced by Holy Spirit in order to take slightly better movements in directions in order to make our relationships slightly better. And so to recap what we have done the past two weeks is the first week we heard from Jace and he unpacked that intentional relationships are God's idea and that they require a constant putting on and putting off. And then I rounded that out and talked about that slightly better relationships are learnt and that learning is often hard, but that is what makes it purposeful and intentional. And then last week you heard from the beautiful Pastor Genevieve and she talked about the apology and the language of forgiveness And then I finish that up with radical kindness. And today, you have another hero of the house. The incredible, wonderful, live with her can tell you firsthand that she is absolutely what she says she is, my mother-in-law, and she's going to come and share on humility and honour. So let's lean in, good people. morning everybody. So great to be able to share with you this morning a little snippet on relationships and my topic this morning is humility. So okay, hands up today if you consider humility one of your greatest attributes. Funny, I don't see any hands. And that is a good thing because, you know what, humility is not a word we usually use to describe ourselves, is it? And it's not something we're likely to put on our resumes because true humility doesn't usually self-advertise. A dictionary definition of humility is the quality of having a modest or low view of one's importance. And that often means that humility becomes associated with being weak or passive, insecure or submissive, but nothing could be further from the truth. I hope that today we're going to see that humility is not the enemy of strength and strength is not the enemy of humility. A humble person can be strong confident and competent. In fact, as one article put it, humble people do not think less of themselves, but think of themselves less. Humble people think of themselves less. So today, my prayer is that we're all going to be encouraged to check our motives and inspired to incorporate this ingredient of humility into all our relationships. 
And my first point today is humility precedes honour. Now, honour is something which can either be given or received. And to honour someone means that you treat them with consideration, respect them greatly, and esteem them highly. It's easy to say, and it's very hard to action at times, but it's almost impossible to do authentically without an attitude of humility. They go together hand in hand. Proverbs 18 verse 12 says, Before his downfall, a man's heart is proud, but humility comes before or precedes honour. I want you to picture this scenario. You're in a team, you've built great relationships with people in that team, and you've got the best possible boss in the world. A bit like me, really. You've experienced some incredible, amazing, and extremely challenging times, but tonight is a night that you get to relax a little bit and eat dinner together. Now, throughout the meal, your boss explains that this is going to be the last time that he's actually going to be eating a meal with you. So you would think as a team that this would be a chance that you can then honour and you can talk about the incredible things that your boss has done and show some love and gratitude. But no, not this team. And Luke tells a story in chapter 22, verses 24 to 27, that a dispute and rivalry rose among Jesus' disciples about which of them was considered to be the greatest. So here they are, arguing instead of honouring. Jesus didn't rebuke them. I would have. I would have said, come on. You're behaving like a bunch of school children. Get your act together. This is about me tonight. But no, he just told them this beautiful picture story. And he said, though there's um, a table and people are sitting at a table, you can picture yourself there, and someone comes along to serve, the people at the table might consider that they are greater than the one who is serving. But Jesus reminded them that they were to remember that he, Jesus Christ himself, son of the most high God, came to serve others, not to be served. He was reminding them that humility was something they needed in a really nice way. There is no greater picture, no greater example of humility preceding honour than that of our Saviour, Jesus Christ. He showed, he paved the way. He humbled himself and because he did, the Bible says that God honoured him and exalted him to the highest position and gave him a name that was above all others. And that is why Paul in Philippians 2.5 reminds us that in our relationships with one another, we are to have the same attitude of mind Christ Jesus had. And then skipping down to verse 8, he tells us that that attitude of mind was one of humility. 
Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient, obedient to death, even death on a cross. So without a disposition of humility among the disciples, self-interest and self-promotion took place and comparison and competition transpired instead of honour and respect. And these sort of attitudes are not going to help us achieve better relationships. We have a choice. And today our action point is, my action is I choose humility. And I will look for ways in which I can build a culture of honour and respect in my relationships with all those in my world. Our point number two is humility prevents pride. Pride and arrogance are the opposites of humility and honour. Who remembers being told by their parents, pride comes before a fall? Now, I seem to remember hearing that quite a bit when I was young, and I'm not sure, not sure why, of course, because I was such a humble child. I think they saw something in me that needed addressing. But, you know, as I looked back, I see those pride falls and the failures actually helped to build humility and continues to build humility in my life. See, pride is Satan's forte. It cost him his position in heaven, and it's one of his greatest weapons that he uses to bring a divisive wedge into relationships. It's why he tries to bring down that spirit of humility. Paul says in Romans 12.3, don't cherish exaggerated ideas of yourself or your own importance, but try to have a sane estimate of your capabilities by the light of faith that God has given to you. So today, can we be people that take a faith stand against pride and choose humility when we feel the need to compare or compete in an unhealthy way, when we refuse to own up to our mistakes, when we have an exaggerated idea of our own importance, or when we get defensive at constructive criticism, when we are wronged and refuse to forgive, when we won't ask for wise counsel, when we display a win-at-all-costs and disregard for others' feelings, when we feel we should be the greatest, the centre of attention, and jealousy rears its ugly head. James reminds us that God resists or is opposed to the proud, but gives more grace to the humble. And I don't know about you, it's not on my bucket list to have God opposed to me. I want his gift of grace in my life. So my action is I choose humility and I receive God's gift of grace to empower me to, uh, to resist pride in my thoughts and my actions. And finally, humility promotes others. Instead of arguing who was the greatest, the disciples could have used that opportunity to high-five each other and celebrate their successes, celebrate the times when miracles had happened because they stepped out in faith. But no, they chose that time to dispute about who was the greatest. Our relationships need us to cultivate from a heart of humility, the art of celebrating our successes and achievements of others, of others, sorry, 
celebrations and achievements without jealousy and competition. Max Licardo told the story of a young boy who came home from trying out for a school play. Mummy, mummy, I got a part. And she said, did you, Johnny? What did you get? I got chosen to clap and cheer, he said. He got to sit in the audience and clap and cheer. We laugh, but let's ask ourselves the question, is humility our default when we are chosen to sit in the audience and clap and cheer, when we are not chosen to be centre stage and when our preferences and expectations are not met? Philippians 2.3 says, don't be selfish, don't try to impress others, be humble, thinking of others is better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others also. Imagine a world like that where we all acted in a spirit of humility to preserve and protect our relationships by doing whatever it took to make others look good. An article in Forbes magazine stated that studies had shown humble people are more likely to help their friends and retain relationships with others than their prideful counterparts. Apparently, they make better bosses and leaders because they base their decision-making on a shared sense of purpose with others rather than on self-interest. They know their self-worth and they don't have to prove how much they know. They are actively better listeners and don't try to dominate conversation. They can celebrate or emphasise with others good or bad news without the need to top it with a story of their own. And our action from this point is, I choose humility and I will actively pursue where it is appropriate to promote the concerns and interests of others before my own. So summing up, no matter what stage of life, age, status or position we hold, Let's choose to cherish build, building good relationships by taking Paul's advice in Romans 12.10 and try and outdo each other in respect and honour of one another. And above all, let's remember our prime example, Jesus Christ. And let's take these verses in Philippians 2, which I will close with, Today, be free from pride-filled opinions, for they will only harm your cherished unity. Don't allow self-promotion to hide in your hearts, but in authentic humility, put others first and view others as more important than yourselves. Abandon every display of selfishness. Possess a greater concern for what matters to others instead of your own interests. And consider the example of Jesus, the anointed one, has set before us. Let his humble mindset become our motivation. Bless you all. Thank you, thank you. Mama Pastor Cherry. Beautiful.
So here we are in the final. This is number six. This is like the dessert of a very long meal. A good meal. So it's only fitting, I think, that we end with Jesus, right? And so as I finish today, this overlaps beautifully with what we've just heard Cherry share, and actually I feel pulls together and dovetails wonderfully with much of the theme and the content that we have heard over the past couple of weeks. And so I want to literally talk on Jesus. Why is that? Well, he is the relationship master. He is this divine intersection between God and human. And when it comes to communication and when it comes to interpersonal skills, he is my absolute hero. And so I want to pull out a number of these interpersonal skills he displays at the story of the woman at the well in John 4. And this story has messed me up time and time again this year. It was a beautiful dovetail revelation in relation to well digging and that whole personal revelation that I've had and you've heard me share a number of times in this season. But the imagery of Jesus sitting at the well, waiting for me, waiting for you, always waiting for us, has wrapped around my heart like a gracious blanket time and time again that he waits for us. He waits to connect. He waits to offer us a drink. He waits to offer us love and acceptance. And this story of the woman at the well, you see, he's dealing with a stranger here. This woman doesn't know Jesus. And so surely if we can see here a number of interpersonal skills on display with how Jesus is dealing with a stranger Surely that is an adequate measuring stick for us to then model how we should be dealing with those closest to us. If this is how he deals with a stranger, how on earth can we then translate that to how we should be dealing with our spouses, our children, our closest friends and our family? So as I've sat and chewed on this story time and time again through these many months, but in certainly this week, Holy Spirit pressed upon me six things that Jesus does interpersonally here. And if we can take a hold of these, if, if we can see the modelling and the exampling and the mastery at display here, I know that if we take a hold of those and can imply them, that then we can have slightly better relationships because we are becoming slightly more like Jesus which is always the whole point of this glorious adventure that we have signed up to, is it not? So John 4, story many of you would be familiar with, and for the sake of time, let's do a super quick recap. So Jesus has spent some time with the disciples, and now he goes through Samaria, and he stops at a well for a drink in the heat of the day. And a Samaritan woman arrives And Jesus interacts interacts with her, offering her a drink. And this drink that he offers her is far more satisfying than the water that she has come to drink. And in their interaction and in their conversation, she has a revelation of who it is that she is speaking to. And it fills her with a love and acceptance that she can't contain. 
She leaves behind her water jar. She leaves behind the thing that she had come for because she returns to her town with so much more than she ever could have imagined. And she shares that encounter. And many are saved as a result. So let's pull back the curtain. Let's deep dive into some of those metaphors, some of the strategies, some of the interpersonal mastery at display that we can see peeking beneath the surface in the way that Jesus interacts with her. The first thing that Jesus does is he sits in the dust. Verse 6 in that John 4 passage. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. And you see, Jesus in his human form here is obviously hot and thirsty. It's the heat of the day. So he sits down to replenish. He sits down to rest. And it's in that sitting that she, the brokenhearted, arrives. And you see this sitting here just as we've heard Cherry share on, is a symbol of humility. See, he is sitting, Jesus, in the mess and the dirt. He has every right to be positioned higher. In fact, when she arrives, it would have made far more sense for him to be in a position of height, for him to take a higher position, for him to lord himself over her in a lofty height. And yet he chooses to sit. He chooses to sit and wait for a woman who doesn't know she is being waited for. And you see, friends, this imagery of sitting in the dust, in the dirt, that's an imagery of authentic relationships. It's in the vulnerable. It's in the deep. It's in the messy. It's in the sitting in the dust with one another that true relationships thrive. And there's a lot of research out right now to say that society is craving this sort of depth of relationship. Not a passing, opinionated, not a superficial, not a social type relationship, but a depth of relationship. And so as I see that imagery of Jesus sitting there in the dust, it challenges me to the core. How often do I sit in the dust with my spouse, my children, my friends? I so often want to pull up a chair, right? I want to stand on that chair, if I'm honest. I want to position myself from a higher place, from a lofty place. But the reality here is that authentic, godly, Christ-like relationships are those where we are not afraid to sit in the dust with another in the mess and the muddle of it all. So maybe slightly better relationships require a little more dust sitting. Secondly, what does Jesus do? He waits. You see, the disciples go on ahead, but Jesus chooses to wait at this well, wait for her who doesn't know she's been waited for. John 4, 7 when a Samaritan woman came to draw water. You see the scripture here in this translation, but in most of them says when. doesn't say immediately she came or then she came, but when she came. So that when indicates that there is a time that has passed. Jesus waits. 
Jesus waits for her. And see, it's this imagery that has wrapped around my heart so many times this past few months, that he's waiting for us. He's waiting for us. He's waiting for us to arrive, waiting for us to give us what it is that we need, waiting to put his arms around us, waiting to sit in the dust beside us. And you see, Maggie Dent, renowned parenting educator, she says that we're very often quick to categorise attention-seeking behaviour as a negative thing. She suggests, what if we kind of flip the story of that in our head and and think of not it as attention-seeking behaviour, but connection-seeking behaviour. See, humans are so often desiring, craving, longing for connection, a longing that we be present, a longing that we have eye contact, a longing that we are seen. And see, this is what Jesus is doing. He's waiting to connect with her. And see, I'm not suggesting we just idly sit around waiting for any opportunity of connection with anybody. That's obviously a ludicrous notion. But I am suggesting that just like Jesus, that slightly better relationships are about seizing the opportunity to connect. That when our child comes and knocks on our door and says, mum, can I ask you about this? That we put down our phone We give them our full attention. We give them our eye contact and we connect. That when a mate reaches out and says, hey, can we grab a beer? We're not afraid of that space. And we say yes, because we seize the opportunity to connect. That when our spouse says, hey, babe, I've got something for you, something we need to talk about, that we lean in and we turn towards And we seize that opportunity to connect. See, Jesus models this waiting and this seizing to connect moment with a complete stranger on a hot and dry afternoon. What else does he do? Thirdly, Jesus starts softly. John 4, 7, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? This is what Jesus is doing here. It's, it's a John Gottman principle, renowned couple psychologist and therapist. He's, this is a soft startup. He's starting with a question, a somewhat cheeky question, a gentle question, a, a kind question. I like to think of Jesus as having a wry smile as he says this, will you give me a drink? It isn't accusatory. It isn't aggressive. It isn't contemptuous. It isn't, there's nothing here that is hard about that initial interaction. It's a bid for interaction with her. It's a, he's turning towards her in a soft way. You see, Jesus begins this life-changing, line-in-the-sand conversation softly. Will you give me a drink? Hey, will you give me a drink? How often... Do we enter conversations, especially hard ones, life-changing ones, complex ones, with that sort of tone, with that sort of manner? I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm so often one to want to be angst-ridden and opinionated, to make my position known, to be justifying where I stand, not bothering to engage with the human, but wanting to get down to business. But Jesus here shows and models 
that the power and success of beginning a significant conversation begins softly. Fourthly, Jace, Jace, sometimes I get those two muddled up. I'm joking, I'm joking. (laughs) My husband is Christ-like, amen. Jesus is counter-cultural. See, Jesus overlooks the double whammy of the fact that she is both woman and Samaritan. He doesn't, Jesus here, adhere to the cultural sounds of the time or the limitations of the time, which would say that he should not be having a conversation with her in any way, shape or form. Yet Jesus chooses not to listen to that, not to lean into that cultural idea and instead chooses to turn towards her and show the depth of his character. And you see, this one can be subtle, right? This can be subtle and somewhat insidious in our current world is that we can find ourselves leaning into the sound of the culture. Here, this is what a relationship actually should look like. Here, this is what love actually is. Here, this is what it means to be a parent or a spouse or a friend. And you see, friends, our culture has a very different narrative, a very different set of strategies, a very different set of sounds, a very different set of ideas around relationships. Our culture is very big on the fact that things should be easy and pleasurable, that it should all be about us, that growth is not a great thing, things should come gently and easy to us, and that words like discipline when it comes to parenting, things like conflict management when it comes to marriage are not great words or great ideals. But the thing is, with our relationships, right, our relationships as believers, our relationships as disciples, they got to look different. They got to sound different. They, they should smell different. Our marriages, our parenting, our family life, our, the way we interact with our colleagues and our families should look different to how the world operates. That this is one of our responsibilities. This is one of our calls. This is one of our, our, our ideas is that our interpersonal relationships need to be slightly better because we're not submitting to how the world does it. Just like Jesus does here, he sees and recognises the sound of the world, but he chooses to look at it in its angry eyes and cover her with love. Fifthly, are you with me? You're very quiet out there. You with me? Fifthly, Jesus offers love and acceptance first. (laughs) First, after they've had this soft startup phrase and they're bandering backwards and forwards, Jesus and this woman, he then moves on to saying, verse 13, Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus had every right and opportunity to be judgmental here to be overly righteous, to be condescending, every right to play some sort of mind game with her. He knows what she has done. 
He knows the sort of woman that she is. Yet he offers her a drink of eternal life first up. He offers her acceptance first up. He doesn't wait for her to feel it, understand it. He certainly doesn't wait for her to reciprocate it. He offers it first up. He shows her that she, like anybody, is entitled to have the drink of love and acceptance that she will never thirst from again. How often, friends, do we offer love and acceptance first up? How often do we wait for the ducks to be in a row, for there to be a level of reciprocation, a level of understanding? Jesus shows us here in a pretty mind-blowing way with a woman who is a Samaritan who has done a whole heap of things wrong. He extends her unconditional love before she understands and before she even realises she doesn't deserve it. Sixthly and finally, Jesus is the solution, not an echo of the problem. The longer she has this conversation with Jesus, the more she comes to understand. And, and let's, let's be real, right? Jesus knows where, she at, where she's at and, and he doesn't choose to hide that in verse 17. He, he doesn't overlook what she has done. However, he doesn't echo the problem. He doesn't gossip the problem. <laughs> he offers a solution and he is the solution. <laughs> Yes, you've messed up. Yes, the whole town is talking about you. Yes, the whole town continues to talk about you. But I'm not going to echo that. Here's a different story to tell you, my love. I am him who heals. I am him who loves. I am him who satisfies. I am him who saves. I am your solution. John 4.25 She is saying the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. John 4.26, then Jesus declared, I am the one speaking to you, I and he. Or in verse 26 in the Passion, she says, she declares, he declares, I am the one you're looking for. He doesn't echo her weakness. He lends her his strength. He doesn't buy into what others are saying about her. He offers her a different narrative. This is a powerful skill, friends. This is a beautiful skill. This is a sacred skill in our slightly better relationships that we would always be on the lookout for helping and loving people through. Not that we be the solution, but we offer the ultimate solution. And that is... Jesus. It's only fitting that we end here, that we don't end in research-based, intellectually ticking research and strategy in the realm of relationships. But as I've wrestled this message to the ground this week, Holy Spirit convicted me again and again with the mounting conviction that it must start and end with Jesus that he is the solution, 
that he is the master, that we need to continually watch and learn from him in all manner of interpersonal skills. And so, friends, as I finish here today, here's the six things that he models in this brief but profound interaction with a stranger. He sits in the dust. He waits. He starts softly. He is countercultural. He offers offers love and acceptance first. And he is part of this. He is the solution, not an echo of the problem. Let me pray. Holy Spirit, may we be led by you. Jesus, may we learn from you, the master of all. May our relationships be slightly better. May we take a hold of these principles and truths and ideas and strategies and skills that we see on display here in all manner of scripture, that we'll apply them in our life, be graced by Holy Spirit, and that we daily, weekly, will edge towards being slightly better, that we will take baby steps forward in all the relationships that we have the privilege of being part of, in our marriages, in our families, in our workspaces. Father God, I pray for your continued strength, wisdom, peace, and enabling on all facets of our relationships represented here in this beautiful community, that we will be slightly better, all for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us here on our podcast. We encourage you to let this word further help you live and share the life to the full that Jesus gives. If you want to check out more about our upcoming events, service times, locations, or to give online, go to c3hh.com.au.